Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm the host of Tycoons of Small Biz, Austin Peterson. If this is the first time you're listening to or watching Tycoons of Small Biz and you're wondering what it is that we do here and why you should be interested in listening to the podcast, we are a podcast that is put together by small business owners for small business owners. And our sole purpose is to prop up the small business owner, give them the opportunity to share their story, share their successes, share their failures, and their advice for other business owners or aspiring business owners. This is an opportunity to get their business name out there as well as for other listeners to be able to listen in and learn from their mistakes, their failures, their successes. Hopefully along the way we already have and we're going to continue to inspire other entrepreneurs to get involved because the small business owner community truly is the backbone of the American economy. We believe in it 100%. So we decided in May of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic and lockdowns, to launch this podcast and give this platform for small business owners to tell their stories. We hope you enjoy what you hear here today. And if you do, please like, subscribe, and review us on whichever platform you found us. Now enjoy today's show. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from Phoenix, Arizona. And today we have a guest on the show, and it's definitely a tycoon. We've got Patrick Nelson, owner and CEO of Nelson Partners, LLC, coming to us live from San Clemente, California. Patrick, I'm almost surprised you're not wearing board shorts. (laughs) You know, I might be wearing board shorts. You just don't know it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the guests don't realize, but I saw you get up before we started, so I know you've actually got pants on. (laughs) I've got some in my car, though, just in case. Just FYI. Yeah. Uh, we talked about this in pre-qualification. I mean, we know you and I have actually spent a lot of time in the same area. I I surf. I've spent time in Southern California. You and I have BYU ties as well. So we, you know, you and I have a lot of a lot of things that we can connect on. But uh, obviously, what what you guys are doing at Nelson Partners is is the reason that we're here today. So before we jump into the the business side of things, Patrick, why don't you tell us a little bit about you personally? Where'd you grow up? What was life like? Uh, you know, where'd you go to college? Do you have kids? All those sorts of things. Sure. Love to, um, you know, I don't know if I've ever been called a tycoon before, so I appreciate that compliment. Thanks for letting me be here. Um, so I grew up in Costa Mesa, California, just right up the road here and then moved to Laguna Hills uh, when I was a freshman in high school. So I'm a kind of a South Orange County, Southern California native. Uh, my parents all grew up in Utah. And uh, college, I played basketball for a year at Orange Coast College here in Costa Mesa back in uh, 93, before the internet, cell phones, all that. And then I played basketball again at Snow College up in Utah. And then I got my undergrad in finance from BYU. And then I worked at Fidelity Investments for a little while and then went up to Utah State um, in 2000 and graduated with an MBA, um, basically with an emphasis in um, entrepreneurship which was very rare at the time. There wasn't a lot of people talking a lot about it now. Obviously it's everywhere, Harvard and BYU has a huge, huge entrepreneurship program. And I think it's amazing. And, you know, guys like you and podcasts, it's it's really cool what's happened. But back then, um, you know, it was just something you kind of had to 
just do on your own and go for it. And, and Utah State had, a, had a, an actual emphasis program in entrepreneurship. And uh, I think that was really, really big for me. Yeah, no, that's really cool. My, you know, I, I don't know if we talked about this or not, but my MBA is from BYU and, and it was with an emphasis in entrepreneurship and sales. So it, uh, it was very similar to what you went through, I'm sure. Now, obviously, I got mine later. You, you went right into high school or into college right out of high school. You and I are close to the same age. I think you graduated high school like 92. 90. 90. All right. Yeah. So I graduated 94. So you're a few years older than me. Um, but then, you know, I didn't, it took me a really long time to get my undergrad. I had started my own business by then. I, I had kids, you know, it took me a while to kind of get through that, but I did get through on my own with no student loans. And then I, and then I went into my MBA program pretty soon after that. So I got my MBA in 2008. Love it. Yeah. Um, congratulations on going through it all. Sometimes once you get started, it's hard to go back, give away no income and, and, uh, you know, put in the time. So that, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's tough. I applaud anybody who does it, but, uh, you know, doing it with a family and owning a business at the same time. I mean, it, it just really, it's a, it's a lot of work, a lot of effort for sure. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that listen to this stuff and why we're on that. Um, you know, a lot of people are saying, Hey, should I go get an MBA? I've got a great idea. I want to start this business. Should I go to school? You know, let's say you got a T-shirt business that's really taken off or a new clothing line or something like that. And you're like, hmm. And, and I'll tell you this. I had a roommate that I was trying to get him to go into business with me. And I wanted to start an online broker brokerage, you know, like E-Trade and Ameritrade and all those. Those were brand new. And I had an idea where we could do one where it's kind of a combination of cheap trading, but you also give advice. Um, so kind of a combination of like a Morgan Stanley and an E-Trade. And yeah. there, there are a few out there anyway, but my roommate and my best friend at the time, he goes, I'm going to MBA school no matter what. He's like, cause you can't, you, once you have that degree, it never goes away. And um, because of that, I went to MBA school and I'm really, really grateful that I did. Cause it's not necessarily what you learn in MBA school, but for me, it was, you learn how to learn. So you learn how to learn and adapt. And uh, I learned some great things. And so I would recommend if you can get the education I would take it. You know, my mom got her bachelor's, I think it in her late fifties as a nurse and her salary went up immediately. She can now become a, a supervisor and things. So I, I would always recommend uh, get the education as high as you can get. Yeah. You know, I, I think you and I uh, agree for the most part, there's maybe a little bit of a difference of opinion as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't, obviously I don't think you need an MBA to, to run a successful business. Um, I looked at it and I said, you know, it's, it'll be something to fall back on, right? Because <laughs> a lot of businesses fail. And so if, if you if you feel like you need something to fall back on, having that MBA makes you definitely more employable than some others out there. But I tell people, I've, told, I've said it on this program before, and I tell other people, the, the value of my MBA was not necessarily the education. It's not that I didn't learn things. It's not that I didn't learn how to learn, like you said. But the, the most valuable part of my MBA, in my opinion, was the network of people that I went to school with. And the fact that they, they are still to this day, some of them are clients, some of them are you know, colleagues, some of them are partners in different things. And, and we just stay connected on a lot of different levels. And, and that is extremely valuable. I 100% agree right there. And you know, half the time it's who you know, not what you know. 
Um, and, you know, you and I kind of went in a different time periods. You, you had, you know, what, 13 years or something post high school and all that. So, you know, for me, I think the education, it, it was, I was in a younger part of my career. And I, here's the thing. I always wanted to know what everyone knew, what everyone else knew. And, um, you know, once I got in there and really learned, I just thought it was invaluable. And you're right. Some people, you can learn everything in MBA school now through internet, through YouTube, right, through buying books, online classes. We didn't have all those back then so much. And so, um, but I, I like it because I, I feel like when I put MBA on there, it gives a little bit of credibility. And I do believe that being, being an expert in your field is invaluable in, in being competitive with the people around you. And obviously you can become an expert in many things without going to MBA school or law school or something like that. So, you know, it, everybody needs to make their own decision. Uh, but for me, learning from other people that have already done it and learning from their mistakes and what they've learned, just like this podcast, hopefully helps some people out there that are trying to get their business going. Um, it was just invaluable. So I recommend it, even if you don't do it, you know, there's, there's small courses like at Harvard and Princeton and place you can go take like an executive class thing, you know, about marketing or whatever, Th those things, every time I get with really smart people that are way smarter than me, I, I come out and I learn things and I use it in my business. So yeah, that's yeah. my two cents on it. No doubt about it. Lifelong learning is something that you and I definitely agree on. I mean, I, I obviously I have a podcast, which I think is important to a lot of people out there who listen and, and get advice on business. But I also listen to many other podcasts. Uh, you know, when I go out for a run, I went out for a run this morning and I listened to a podcast the, the entire time that was talking about the economy and where things where these economists believe that things are going. So I believe that we should always be learning anything that we can. It's just going to make us all better for sure. Yeah. To, to compete in, in today's world, you have, you have to, um, you know, never be satisfied and you have to continue to improve and continue to get better and adapt with technology and adapt with what everyone else is coming up with. So I 100% agree with you. And, and frankly, it's, everything's at the tip of our fingers now. I mean, just listening to this podcast, hopefully they'll, they'll catch some things that I wish I was able to learn and listen to when I first started my business or businesses, you know, back in the day. So, yeah. um, love yeah, it. For sure. Yeah. So let me throw one thing out there actually that I learned on the podcast that I listened to this morning on my run, and then we'll jump into what Nelson partners is, but I thought this was interesting. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of people who, are worried about the economy today, and, and rightfully so. There are some things that are, that are going on. The COVID-19 pandemic didn't help any of that, and we're going to talk you know, about that as well. But um, people, I think, feel like long-term that the U.S. is not going to be the powerhouse that, that they are today. And this economist actually threw that aside and said, you know, that that's completely false. The reality is the U.S. is, is the only... Uh, large economy that is growing in terms of population, right? So we've got this large population of millennials that are really going to drive the economy forward, where all of these other countries throughout the world, whether it's China, India, Japan, they all have shrinking populations. They were having fewer kids. And so think about just the volume of people who are in our country who are growing up as entrepreneurs and have a desire to innovate and build companies and do all these sorts of things and what that's going to mean for our economy over the next decade. I, I think the future is much brighter than people believe it is. Oh, I 100% agree. And by the way, I have six daughters myself. So I'm contributing to that, uh, that growth in the population. And my oldest daughter is 15 and she's already into entrepreneurship. She's she wants to run her own business. She, she's been to more meetings that I even knew existed when I was her age. 
and um, she's got strategies. So um, it, it also, I, I agree with that 100 percent in terms of what, what I think drives the American economy, why we're the leaders and we always will be is because of the word you just said, which is innovation. You know, my first cousin graduated number one in his class from Air Force Academy. He flies F-22 Raptors. And he says that the, the reason that we have not been taken over by some very aggressive countries is one word, right? And want, want to take a guess what that word is or what he told me? The innovation would be my guess based on how you started, but who knows? Exactly, exactly. So technology, when he flies the F-22 Raptor, you know, he's like, I, I see and know about the, the enemy a hundred miles before they know I'm here. Even though they outnumber us, you know, I think he was telling me China was some, some very scary number, but it's because of technology, because we've been the forefront of technology, you know, for really since our existence. And one thing that America does great is we create an environment where anybody can make it like me and you start from nothing, start from an apartment. You can go out there and work hard and innovate and be creative and, and, um, you know, the number one thing I think is resilience. You stay in there and you figure it out. And with that free competition out there and constantly innovating in technology, and now with these millennials coming up that have all this access, I can't even imagine what's coming in the future in terms of um, innovation. I think that's going to keep us at the forefront. We may have to adjust, you know, some of the way we do business and some of the things and and you know, learn to adapt things like Zoom, for example, and, and doing business, being competitive and hiring and all that. But um, I think we're we're going to lead the lead the world. I think for at least our lifetime. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about that. I mean, we already talked about our ages. You know, I'm I'm in my late 40s. You're probably in your early 50s now, maybe just barely 50. Um, and you know, we. <laughs> We're pretty good users of technology. We're sitting here in two different states. We're using Zoom. I've used Zoom in my business even pre-pandemic, but now even more so. And, and I'm sure you're doing the same thing. And so we've we've adopted technology. We use it very well. But you and I grew up playing Pong on Atari. I mean, think about what our kids grew up with technology-wise compared to what we grew up with. Yeah, in, in 90, when I was in high school, it was Tetris. Remember that little handheld game? So, yeah. and right now, what's so great about the technology in our kids' hands, you know, there's definitely some vices that you need to watch out for, but, you know, if you want to use technology, just ask your kid and they'll, they'll give you the most innovative, what, what everybody's using, what the trends are, and uh, you can learn from them. So, you know, the opportunity I think is, is, is right there for us. We just got to stay with it. You know, you and I just hit the halfway mark <laughs> in life. <laughs> So yeah. we, we've seen enormous change and, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine what's coming in the future. Our kids probably won't even drive their cars. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's funny. It's funny. You just said that. Cause I just got back from a trip. My wife and I were, uh, over in Israel and Jordan with my wife's sister and her husband in a big tour group, but my wife's sister had her 50th birthday while we were on the tour. And I literally said to her, you're halfway home. <laughs> so, <laughs> It, it's, uh, home, baby. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about Nelson Partners. So obviously Nelson Partners could mean anything. I mean, you could be in any kind of business. So tell us what Nelson Partners does. So Nelson Partners is a fully vertically integrated real estate company. And, um, you know, I started basically from my apartment on the Internet um, and raising money for different real estate um, projects for other people. And uh, there, there's a section in the in the tax code called the 1031 exchange. I personally believe it's the greatest 
um, opportunity to build wealth in the world. And essentially what it is, is it allows you, if you buy um, investment real estate, that when you sell it, you can defer 100% of all the taxes. That's recapture taxes, capital gains tax, and roll it into a new piece of real estate and keep 100% of your capital working. You can't do that in anything else that I know of. Even an IRA, you know, once you finally pull it out, um, it's then it's taxable, right? And so, and then the 1031 also allows you to, um, when you pass away, finally, your next of kin or whoever you leave it to gets a stepped up cost basis. So if you bought it 50 years ago for super cheap, and now you're selling it for, you know, millions and millions of profit, uh, your next of kin, they get it at the price that it's currently valued when you passed away. So all of those tax gains go away. So we took advantage of that. And then I found a very unique niche early on in my career in about 2004 called student housing. And that's really predominantly where we've been. I've closed over $2 billion in student housing. We currently have our own construction company and our own property management company, our development company and acquisition company. And um, we use student housing as a vertical, as a platform for people when they sell their real estate. So let's say you bought a rental home 30 years ago, you've been renting it out and, and, re and renovating it and stuff. And you're finally tired and sick of management, but you, you, you got a million dollars of gains. You bought it for 350,000 in let's say 94. Now it's worth 1.5. If you sell it, you're going to pay four or 500,000 at least in taxes out the door. Whereas if you roll it into a 1031 exchange, you pay zero. So you could roll all of that money into one of our student housing projects that we come in now, we manage and pay you a monthly um, income. And then also you get all the upside because you're a direct owner when we sell it down the road. Um, and we, we've got a great track record um, in terms of, you know, buying property and turning it over. So that's kind of our niche. And the way I got started was 1031 Exchange has been around for 100 years, but nobody really knew about them so much in the the. Uh, platform I just mentioned. And so they were originally done as what's called a tenant in common ownership. And then a Delaware statutory trust called a DST. And um, I was the first one on Google AdWords in 2003 and 2004 with TIC 1031 and DST 1031. Now there's hundreds of people and brokers and everywhere, but that's how, that's how I got my start. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you if uh, if a Delaware statutory statutory trust is what you guys use. So it's a it's a it's one of those things. Actually, I don't know how many listeners even paid attention, but if you're in commercial real estate, and you certainly uh, stood up when the Biden administration was toying with pulling the 1031 exchange from uh, you know from the tax code and, and having that be available and. You know, obviously there, there's all this rhetoric out there. It's allowing all these millionaires and billionaires to just avoid paying taxes and keep rolling their investments and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But what they don't talk about is what that really does for our economy overall. So yes, there is that capital gains deferment or avoidance in, in going from one project to the next, but those projects are driving billions and billions and billions of dollars into our economy every single year. Yeah, that's exactly right. I had that exact conversation with the Wall Street Journal, I want to say uh, maybe eight or nine years ago, when um, I think it was Obama was talking about it. Clinton talked about it. There's a lot of, it always comes up, but the Denver Exchange has been around for over a hundred years. The other thing that it really does is it keeps our infrastructure healthy. So if you have a building right? And you're, you own it and, and it's getting old and run down because we use it. What's your motivation um, to sell it 
if uh, if you're going to pay a ton of taxes. So what would happen is people would just turn into slumlords. You just keep it as long as you could, long as it could stand, right? And and keep them put the minimal repairs in there and get as much income out of it as possible. But now when you sell it, somebody else like me can come in and is willing to put in a few million dollars and renovate it, make it nice and get rid of all the asbestos and and add internet and, and really re rebuild it um, because I was able to roll my money from a previous um, property without paying the taxes. And so it really, really helps our infrastructure that we all live in and use every day around the country. And you're right, it, it lets with every time a property gets old, you hire all sorts of architects, engineers, um, workers, you know, construction people, um, electricians, plumbers, everybody that keeps them in, in use. And in student housing, that's especially true because the students are so hard on the properties. So every four or five years, you basically have a renovation opportunity because these kids are, you know, they're full of energy and, and, and they have their fun out there. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of the students, I mean, let's talk about what the what the COVID-19 pandemic did to impact student housing in your business, because we all know, I mean, the world stopped. People weren't in school any longer. So what did that mean for you guys? You know, so student housing was so great for us for 15 years. And I used to make the, you know, the sales pitch that, you know, these are the strongest economic anchors in the world, our university in the United States. There's always going to be demand for it. Um, you know, a lot of people have asked me, well, with technology, are people going to start getting online classes? Yeah, yeah. But it's really the rite of passage for us. When we're 18, we leave home and we want to learn to be on our own. And it's a great way for us, you know, to go into a, like the dorms at a university and and all of that. So I don't think that's going anywhere anytime in our lifetime uh, for the most part. But it, it was tremendous for us for, you know, almost two decades. And then all of a sudden we got hit by, you know, a Mack truck. And every single university within three weeks shut down, which crushed the demand for students to, who want to live in these places, right? But then second, it was even harder because the government came out and said, you can't evict and you don't have to collect rent or, you you know, if the students don't want to pay, they don't have to pay and you can't evict them. And um, we were kind of stuck because we still had all of our taxes and payroll and loans and landlords didn't really get any relief. Um, we got a little bit of PPP which paid for payroll, which is one small um, expense, you know, in our expense chart. And uh, it was brutal for about a year and a half, really until the fall of 2022. It was just, it, it was absolutely brutal. And everybody got tested in student housing and negotiation skills with lenders and vendors and everything, everything you can think of has come up. We, we've literally um, been through it all. And I'm glad to say that now it's all back. We're coming out back on top. We had a great portfolio that for the most part did well. And I want to say one other thing. For the most part, I'd say about 80% of students still paid their rent, did the honest thing. Yeah, that's good to hear. So, I mean, obviously there's still 20%. That definitely has an impact on your cash flow and your ability to be profitable as an organization. So, I mean, I'd love to hear more about the, the negotiations with the lenders and how how open they were, right? Because we we had a real estate collapse in 2008 and some lenders were were willing to negotiate and others just wanted to foreclose. And, you know, I, I, I've got a personal friend who had a pretty big portfolio that basically was able to negotiate with the lender and say, look, what I can do with this property is going to be better for everybody overall. So you're better off working with me versus just taking it back and trying to to figure it out on your own and throwing it in with the rest of your properties. But tell us what that was like for you. 
You know, it's interesting because we had a lot of different lenders. I started my company in 2007, right? The worst possible time to start a real estate company with the 2008 recession. And, but what it did though, is it, it, it forced me to go out and find lenders of all kinds. So I, I, we've done loans through national banks, local banks, seller carrybacks, CMBS market, you know what that is? Um, you know, the F Freddie and Fannie, HUD, all the governments and, you know, debt funds, hard money lenders, all of it. And we, we had a pretty good mix because um, unfortunately we had four or five rehab projects that were in the middle of everything when it hit. And so it was a mixed bag, you know, actually Fannie Mae was probably our hardest lenders to deal with. And one of the issues here is that, you know, we, we were low leverage 50 to 55%. So there was a ton of equity and it wasn't that the value of the properties went down. It's just our cash flow made it hard to make our monthly payment. And so some lenders, some private lenders were fantastic. They worked with us. They deferred interest. They worked with us to pay them back. They gave us extensions because they all thought the universities were coming back. And, um, you know, we actually out of 25 properties or so, we lost three, I think, to um, to foreclosure when um, we just we just couldn't. And that was in the fall of 2020. And there was just no sign of, of the uh, um, of the universities opening back up. There were no vaccines yet. And my investors so elected to not put in more money. You know, most of my, uh, my most of my investors are older and retired, and this is a small portion. And hopefully, they diversified well, which we teach people to do with 1031s. Um, you can go up to actually three or four different properties. And um, so we just had a couple groups of investors decided not to put money, and everybody who did put money in, which we recommended now, is back in business and has you know recaptured all of their value. Uh, but you know, some lenders, we had to get attorneys on the phone. We had to, you find out every single line that's in your contract. So when you, whenever you sign a contract, make sure you have smart people that read them and let you know exactly what you're signing. Because when things don't go your way, um, you know, there's very aggressive, vulturous attorneys out there that will use every line they can to um, extract from you what they can. So you've got you've to have really smart people and good attorneys to protect you and your assets. And unfortunately, uh, we, we had some great people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound like you got through unscathed, right? I mean, three foreclosures is not is not nothing, but it could have been way, way worse considering how empty the, the student housing um, buildings were and whether or not they decided to pay. So that's I would chalk that up as a win overall. Yeah, it was a hundred percent win. And in fact, one of our properties at the University of Houston was just also bad luck because it was a big drainage river. They call it a bayou system out there that's between us and campus. And they actually, during COVID, shut the bridge down so that um, the students now had to walk a mile out of their way to get to campus. So you know, we actually had a double, a double whammy on one of them, and um, the other one was actually sold and was enough to pay off everything. And um, we actually were able to sell it. And so we technically we had two foreclosures right there and both of them, I think the properties were worth significantly more than the loans. Um, and all the rest are, did very well. And, and today are, are for the most part doing better than ever with you know all the buildup of student housing um, or the, the demand for student housing exceptionally high because um, you know people deferred school for a few years. So you know yeah. we're, we're looking really strong there. So are you back to the exact same occupancy levels, higher, a little bit lower? What does that look like? Well, you know, we max out at 100%, right? So 
Um, but overall, we're, we're the best we've ever been. And our rents are actually higher than they've ever been. And part of that's with the inflation going crazy and, and all of that. But the other side is just a demand. And, and every university with student housing is a microeconomy. So it depends on how many houses are available or you know how many bedrooms are available in that market, how many students are coming. Uh, like we have a project at Purdue that we had a fully, we were fully renovating, built in the 70s. And we were able to get that finished, even though it took an extra year. Um, so it cost us an extra million dollars of interest. But, you know, Purdue it just is booming at the, they're overflowing at their applications. And it's a great university. They, they had a great basketball team, just got upset. Uh, but, you know, we're 100% full and, you know, we're 88% pre-leased, which is higher than we've ever been for this coming fall. And we're pushing rents higher than they've ever been. So I think across the board, we're better than we've ever been before in terms of, you know, renting and at what prices. Yeah. So the Patrick that I know is not somebody who just sits there and says, okay, we're back to where we were. We're, you know, hundred percent leased up 88% pre-leased. Everything's good. You got to be looking for that, for that next thing. So what's, what's next for student housing overall. And then for Nelson partners. So we've got probably eight or nine pieces of property that we've been um, land banking on at Sacramento state, Idaho state, Utah state. Um, we just finished a brand new ground up construction at Utah State, where I got my MBA 20 feet from campus. We have another two and a half acres that took me five, six years to put together, buying from nine different sellers of different houses and complexes. Um, and I, we have about 80 beds on that property. We're going to build 600 beds. Um, the property we just opened was two years overdue and about 10 million over budget. Uh, but it's it's a really a magnificent property. I think one of the best ever built in Utah. And like I said, it's 25 feet to campus. Um, and we have similar properties at also at Washington State and some other great places. So we continue to innovate and try to come up with some of the, you know, um, you know, the best student housing out there. Um, you know, one thing that we we try to do now is build parking garages so that we can build all of our property just all together um, rather than having like, an, like a big parking lot with a bunch of buildings all spread out. We try to put all the cars in one place because the kids don't really use them that much and then build our properties like in a big rectangle so that all the pro all of the units that look interior can see the open amenity space and and um, you know see when people are having a pool party or or out there playing soccer or beach volleyball or something like that you know because one of the biggest problems ironically in student housing right now is that kids feel very very isolated and alone and lonely and and they really struggle even though they're so connected and one of the reasons because they go in their room and close the door and get on their devices and don't come out so we try to set it up so that um, you can look out your window and see um, you know what's going on and, and invite people to have you know non-phone parties and and really get people off their um, phones and, and involved in the, the housing because you know who your roommates are and who you live with can really make your whole college experience. If you get a bunch of great friends, like you said, that you keep in contact with in a network. And that's one of the best, um, I think, sales pitches for big student housing complexes because you meet everyone on your floor, right? And do a bunch of fun things rather than living in a house somewhere where you only know three people. And if one of them's, you know, working at night or something and you don't really have a social life, it could change your entire experience of college. So, um, and then just trying to stay up with innovation and, um, you know, what the students need and want and all of those type of things. And that's the great thing about student housing, too, is kids are young, right? So we always know what the hip things are. We know what's going on. We know what platforms are being used. Um, you know, when we first started, it was Facebook. Now it's predom predominantly all TikTok and Snap. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's cool to hear that. And, and, you know, I've got a daughter who was living in student housing up in Rexburg, Idaho, about uh, a year ago, and, you know, went up and saw how that was set up and how it was laid out. And I, I think the way that you're describing yours is it, it is a better layout than what they had, you know, because she, she lived with seven other girls. I mean, it was eight girls in one apartment. And so wow. you would, you'd have built in social life, but she talked about the isolation and spending time in a room. And I, I think that there's, you know, the, the layout is super important, like you said, so you can see what's going on. But then I think it probably also comes down to the management itself to build opportunities for everybody to get together, right? And to encourage everybody to spend time together, to get off their devices, to do the, the social things face-to-face -face without devices. I, I think that that's a, a really important thing that all young people need, but more so now after the COVID-19 pandemic, we all know that isolation, uh, feeling isolated and depression and anxiety and all that kind of stuff went through the roof during the pandemic. You know, it was already a problem in college Then it went through the roof, Austin. And it's more than just the, the management, the management and, and who's running your show is very important, but it's also your reputation. You know, you want to, we want to build a reputation that we're social. There's lots of activities um, with our new deal um, at Utah State, I just personally had a conversation with the uh, women's basketball um, head of operations. They want to come in and give us like a hundred tickets to three games, right? So that we'll bring a whole bunch of people all together and go, you know, we'll have pizza and everything first. Then we all walk across the street, um, you know, to the uh, basketball stadium and watch the girls and everybody cheers. And, you know, Utah state's one of the top 15 college towns. So that won't be hard. But, you know, there is a real big difference between living in a real social place, especially if you're not social yourself and, you know, living in a house or somewhere far away. And, um, you know, for each, each is their own. If you're a grad student, maybe you're kind of done with that. You just want to study and really focus. And um, then you live in a different type of housing. And so, like I said, each university, its own microeconomy, like USC, for example, has more grad students than undergrad. So not that many people know about that. So when I bought property at student housing, we bought two two. Um, complexes that only had one bedroom units and studios because we wanted to go after the grad students and we rehabbed them all and did really, really well with those. Whereas, you know, at a place like Utah State or BYU, Idaho and Rexburg, you're going to get mostly undergrads and, you know, pretty full of energy, social people. So you got to really create a great environment there and then everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, you're pointing out things that most of us don't even think about, right? Because we're not doing what you do day in and day out. But it, I, I love the fact that you're thinking about the students and their experience and not just about, you know, the bottom line, so to speak. Well, yeah, one thing I wanted to mention too, Austin, that I, I probably didn't tell you about this last time, but I think we're the only student housing firm in the country that has our own therapist on staff. So we have uh, Dr. Ken, who graduated from BYU with his PhD in marriage and family therapy. And he worked for like 20 years um, dealing with kids out in those wilderness programs, you know, kids who are addicted to drugs and stuff. And, and they just, they just rip them out of their homes and go put them out in the wilderness and, and with adolescents. And so he works for us full time. And um, unfortunately, you know, we've had to use them in emergency situations multiple times, um, you know, with suicide prevention and, and or other tragedies that have happened at different campuses and it's been really, really great. And I, every time we let students know about him, he fills up. And the universities, you know, they have sometimes a three to six month waiting list to get in. They have great programs, 
But right now, just to get in to see someone, sometimes it's three to six months. And um, so, you know, we've really done, um, and we have big plans to expand that and add people in all of those things. It all just kind of got, um, you know, sidelined with the, all of the financial issues of the pandemic. But we, we plan to actually build a whole program with, um, you know, PhD candidates under Ken so that we can um, multiply and, and, and get to a lot more students out there. Yeah, no, I think I think that's great. I love hearing things like that. And I, you know, not to get on my soapbox, but for entrepreneurs that are listening, people who are aspiring business owners or have a business today, um, you know, I, I've, I've seen it over and over and over again, that businesses that have more of a purpose than just to make money end up being better off financially anyhow. And so if your focus can be on doing something that's impactful to those that you're serving, whatever business you're in, you're going to find that you're actually more financially successful anyhow, and you're making a, a, a positive impact rather than just being out there to make money. You know, what a great comment, Austin. And I would totally agree with that. And, and that's really why we're all here, right? So that we can, the reason I want to be an entrepreneur and build something is so that I can leave a mark on the world for the better. But once you get there and, and you have the opportunities, giving back is, is probably the best feeling. That's kind of when you, I feel like, you know, you've made it and you can give back and you have some um, excess time and, um, and uh, you know, avail, uh, resources, I should say, to, uh, to give back to the, the, the people that helped you get there. And, and right now, I think that for us, um, we can't get, bring enough awareness to, um, you know, the mental health. Uh, especially of our of our kids out there, I think that's the the social media with all of its greatness has also brought some really um, hard trials, you know. And if you're struggling to find friends or whatever, and you know you can look on Snap and see all your friends are at a party that you didn't get invited to, it can just be crushing to someone, especially if it's your roommate, you know, and you didn't get invited, or your next door neighbor or college and high school kids. So um, I really think that, that bringing awareness to mental health is uh, something we all need to take uh, very high consideration of. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt about it. And I, I applaud you for recognizing that with your business, it's something that you can impact in a positive way. Yeah. So besides the besides the therapist, which I think is extremely innovative, what what other strategies does Nelson Partners employ that that your competitors do not? So I mean. I've got three or four businesses I can tackle that one on. Let's just take construction, you know? So we started our own construction company because we want to be able to control the costs. So, you know, let me just give you this. If there's somebody out there that's flipping their house and you got to go hire a flooring contractor, the flooring contractor is going to mark up the labor and mark up the material and make themselves profit. So by starting our own construction company, I can go directly to the suppliers. And here in California, you know, we buy like quartz countertops and, and flooring directly from importers in Long Beach. We literally have trucks that will drive the, the materials to, to um, like we're renovating in downtown Denver right now near um, Metro State and the Community College of Denver and Colorado University of Denver, all here a campus. And we have a property right next to them in downtown called the Auraria Campus. We're doing a big multi-million dollar renovation and we probably saved three or $400,000 just on buying the materials direct and then hiring the labor directly. And so that there isn't all these markups. And when you take that across the board, um, you know, that's one way that you can really save money with uh, economies of scale. I mean, it's a big pain to, to handle a construction, you know, especially when it gets shut down and COVID and prices go up. 
But overall, I think it's been very beneficial to us because then we can do more for our units and our renovations for the same dollar that other people can do. It gives us a huge competitive advantage. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's true. I mean, that can be true in a lot of different industries, right? I mean, I, I think that if you're <clears throat> if you're in whatever business, just pick any sort of business, you there are other people, suppliers or vendors or other companies that you're interacting with that are important for your industry. And so it can be an easy crossover to say, well, we can add that to our portfolio. We can do that as well. And then we can actually save some of the profit, like you said, that that other company is making and make our overall entity not only more profitable, but also more efficient. Yeah, you're dead on. And then part of being an entrepreneur, you know, one of the things I like to tell people, they say, you know, what's led to your success? And one of them is, as I say, for every wrong decision, okay, every wrong decision, you got to make a thousand right decisions, okay? And what I mean by that is if you only have a hundred thousand you've saved up or 20,000 or 5,000 for marketing, you got to spend it in the right marketing. If you don't get leads and sales, it's going to run out real quick. And so that's like here, like with, with, you know, with the vendors and things, if they're plumbers or electricians or things that require, you know, licensed people and are really hard to do, you know, I like to give those to the experts, easier things like painting and flooring and installing cabinets, um, you know, are much less. And those are the ones that we've, you know, chosen to go into and because you can easily, you know, make decisions and bring in a lot of liability, um, you know, even like hiring a in-house lawyer, in-house legal a lot of people are probably looking at doing that. Well, now you don't have the insurance and the, the liability protection you'd get from hiring a law firm outside. So, you know, there's lots of those small decisions that you just got to really evaluate and figure out what makes the most sense. And, and when you do it correctly, yeah, you can really become the vertical integration can really become a profit center that's hard for people to compete with. And it gives us, you know, really, really big advantages. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Well, we're coming to the end of our time here. So let's let's kind of close it out with this and then I'll let people tell or let you tell people how to get in touch with you if they want to invest in one of your projects or they've got a 1031 exchange opportunity. But overarching question for you, Patrick, is you've been doing this for a while. 2004, it sounds like. Um, what is the biggest piece of advice that you would give to entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs today? The number one piece of advice by far, right, is I heard I heard it actually from Tony Robbins. He said it and, and he asked the question. He said, you know, what what do you think makes the most successful entrepreneurs or small business owners? And I'll, I'll throw that out to you. I can't remember if I asked you that before. You know, what, what would you say are the, are the number one or two things that you need to be able to have access to or, or do or um, attributes to, to be successful? Uh I mean, I guess I depend if it's if it's one word, I would say grit. But if I if I were given a paragraph, I would say or you know a sentence, I would say um, unwilling to quit. Perfect. You you must have heard this one before. You know, when I ask this in front of like MBA students or other place where I'm speaking, a lot of times they'll say, "Well, it's money. It's access to money. It's it's connections. It's access to all these different things." And Tony Robbins said it basically what you said: un unwillingness to to quit or grit. He just called it resilience. If you need money and you have a great idea and you're willing to work hard, there's money out there. You just got to go find it. 
And if you need good people to help or you have a great idea, there are people that will help you get it done, but you just got to be resilient. And that doesn't mean just not quitting. It means not quitting and coming back smarter, learning when you fell down. Why did you fall off the horse? And why did you get hurt? Because you weren't wearing the the helmet or the saddle wasn't on right. You got to get the things figured out and come back a little bit smarter every time. And you get better and better. And then the more resilient you are, you'll start seeing, wow, there's the the opportunities out there and the resources are unlimited for people that have that resilience. If somebody says no to you 10 times, you know, the, the 99th time might be the time they say yes, and then it's over, right? And then the one time you get the money, then you got to go perform. And uh, so that's what I would say. Resilience is, is um, probably the, the number one thing. And then one other comment I want to make to people out there, a lot of people ask me, you know, how do you make more money in life? What if I don't want to be an entrepreneur? What if I just want to get, you know, get paid more? And I ask that same question. I go, what do you think drives your, your, um, how much you make? What's the number one thing? And I'll just tell you is most people will always say how valuable you are to the company. Right. And when I look at giving someone a raise or something, how valuable is part of it, you know, but look, the person that answers the phone and does the FedExes, they're invaluable. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't be in business without them, but this is it. It's how replaceable you are. If you're replaceable, you can be super valuable, but if I can get somebody else to do the same job for less or the same amount, but if you are irreplaceable, like if you could stop LeBron James from scoring 20 points a game or hold him to under 15, even though you didn't score one point, you'd be making 30 million a year right now because nobody else can do that. Right? So it's the same thing in your, in your company. If you're, irreplaceable to your company, the more irreplaceable you become, the more you will get paid. And that's the same thing in your business and competing with everybody else out there. If I have the most irreplaceable property, you know, with location and value and price and all that, I'll always be full. So those are my two send off remarks. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's great. I mean, if I, if I were to kind of sum that all up, I would say something to the effect of, you know, you don't, you don't fail until you quit. Right. So every entrepreneur has a story of failure <laughs> or 10. And I, I, you know, <laughs> yeah, at least at least one. Right. And yeah. like I said, I listened to another podcast this morning on my run and the entrepreneur that was being interviewed uh, talked about his first two ventures. And both one of the first of uh, the first one started, raised money, failed. The second one failed to even get it started because they just they couldn't quite get it off the ground. And then it was his third that he bootstrapped, didn't raise money for, and just kind of pushed through and went to school at the same time that he now then over the last 20 years has built into a very successful company and just had an exit via via an ESOP. So, I mean, we we have these views or these pictures of overnight success. It's not what happens. No. It, it's failure, 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 keep pushing, keep pushing. And then all of a sudden, you got this overnight success because you just kept at it. And let me just add that. I 100% agree with you. If you swing for the fences and strike out 10 times, but one time you hit the home run, your life has changed forever. You only need to do it once. You make one company goes. You can, you can fail as many times as you want, like Thomas Edison and all that. But um, you only need one time where you finally make it. And with the example you just gave, see, he just came back smarter, made the changes, got better every single time. You see it in the great athletes, right? And when they, their rookie year to their end of their career, they're not even the same player. Same thing with us. You just got to keep learning, be resilient and become smarter. 
and become an expert. Know your business better than everyone else around you and, and you'll be successful. Yeah. All right. Well, Patrick, I've really appreciated the conversation. Let's end with you telling our guests how to get in touch with you if they're interested in a 1030 wedding exchange or investing in one of your properties. Yeah. And a lot of parents call me about investing in, you know, buying a condo for their students because they're about to go to college. And I, I've got some thoughts on that too. Um, just nelsonpartners.com is our website. It's the easiest way. You can get our phone number. You can call in. We're a small company. Um, you can reach out to me anytime. I, I love to connect with people and, uh, you know, any questions at all. So I really appreciate it. Um, nelsonpartners.com. And, uh, you know, thanks for having me on, Austin. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us next week for an introduction to another great tycoon and be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.